The New Testament reading is taken from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, beginning, beginning in the sixth chapter and the fifth verse. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye servings as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it's my pleasure today to invite Nathan Malcolmson out up to, and, and, uh, to preach for us today. And, and Nathan is a, a regular here, both in attendance at Christ Church and preaches from time to time. Nathan was a student of mine a number of years ago at UBC, and uh, he's been an integral part of Christ Church from the beginning. And so I'm very glad to have you. So let me pray for you, Nathan, as you uh, bring the word to us today. Father, I thank you for your servant, Nathan. I thank you, Father, for your work in his life and his glad willingness to serve you and your people. And I pray, Father, that you'd empower him by your gracious Holy Spirit and help him to bring your word, your majestic word, to our hearts this day that we might feed upon you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the passage today is um, Ephesians 6, 5 to 9. I'm going to pray quickly before I start. Father, I ask that you would proclaim your gospel and your glory here today, that no untrue word I utter um, would take root, but it be wiped away, and that all good and glorious things that you have to say to us today, Lord, would take root in our heart and would bear fruit, and would bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So this, this passage today is a, is a difficult one to deal with, and there's, there's no way around it. After addressing husbands and wives, and then children and parents, Paul turns in Ephesians to address slaves and masters. And this is when we can get uncomfortable. For Paul to address slaves and not immediately tell them, run away, it's confusing for us especially in our modern age, when we are conditioned to hear slavery and immediately react with blind disgust. R rightly so. However, reading commentaries on the passage, I noticed a really interesting uh, trend. In the older commentaries, written by men such as John Chrysostom in the 4th century and even up till Calvin in the 16th century, they would address this passage as it deals to slaves before they made any extrapolation to other points. Whereas the more modern commentaries by men such as Sproul and MacArthur um, would almost immediately denounce slavery and make the application to people in the workplace. And so that's not to say anything against Sproul and MacArthur. Both their commentaries are amazing on this passage and immensely helpful. But it does speak to the time we live in and the concerns of both the modern church and of society. In a time when there is so much political unrest so much brokenness in society, and so much economic need, it's really easy to get caught up in the superficial problems of the world. 
But the primary problem with the world is not political or social or economic. It is spiritual. It is a problem with the human heart. Our hearts are misled, they are broken, and they are bankrupt. So this is not to downplay the atrocities that manifest in bad political leadership or misogynistic societies or places without food or money to live, but those problems all fall short to the problem of unrepented sin. And the history of Israel bears testimony to this. Whether slaves or free conquerors are crushed, exalted or humbled, Israel's biggest problem remained their heart, their lack of doing God's will and their refusal to repent and believe. As slaves in Egypt, they cried out for freedom, and so they were led out to freedom, and they complained. They lamented that they were not still slaves. And they go into the promised land, and they're given dominion, they're given victory over all their enemies, and they turn from God. And the constant refrain in the book of Judges is that everyone does what was right in their own eyes. So the people get together, and they decide that what will save them is a king. It's an earthly master. Instead of appealing for new hearts, they appeal for a political structure. They appealed for a king that would be just like the kings they saw around them. So they got Saul, a man who was handsome, strong, charismatic, by all outward appearances, a great king, and just what they needed. But Saul's heart was not right, and he led Israel astray. Even in the return from exile, that great event prophesied by so many men in so many books of the Bible, even the return from exile from Babylon to Jerusalem, that did not fix the problem of sin. And you can take Israel, the Israelite out of Babylon, but you can't take Babylon out of the Israelite. The whole of human history testifies that sin, sin is the primary problem of humanity. So when we approach this passage, we should have an attitude of hatred towards slavery. It is vile. It is horrendous. It deserves to be abolished and destroyed. But that's not Paul's point. Paul's point is that you were once vile and horrendous and deserve to be abolished and destroyed. So how are you going to live now that you have a new heart? How are you going to live now that you have life? And specifically, Paul is addressing this question to slaves. Because for the slave, when learning about Christianity and reading the book of Ephesians or having it told to them, there had seemed to be a great incongruity between the first three chapters and the reality of their life. In Ephesians 1 to 3, they learn that they're predestined for salvation. We have been adopted by God. We're fellow heirs with Christ. They look around at their life and there's captivity and bondage and suffering. They'd be tempted to use their spiritual identity as justification to abandon their earthly duties, run away from their masters to something that's easier and more preferable for them. But Paul doesn't advocate that here in this passage. He doesn't say, slaves, now that you're saved, do what you want. Go nuts. He says the opposite. He says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters. <clears throat> obey is a strong word. It entails submission, but it also entails humility, silence, surrender, and lowliness. When your master says go, you go. When he says jump, you say how high. Paul doesn't leave exceptions for hard labor or demeaning tasks. He says very definitively, obey your earthly masters. And he qualifies the type of obedience he commands in verses 5 and 6. He says that firstly, this obedience is to be characterized by fear and trembling. 
with a sincere heart. The slave's obedience is to transcend their actions. Paul is exhorting the slave to obey with integrity so that their posture of willing servitude would match a heart that is postured to serve. It's not enough that the slave go through the diurnal routines of obedience, doing it with compulsion and inward grumbling and malice. The slave's actions and words are to flow from their heart. Even for us, it's so easy in our workplaces, and I tell you this as one who worked at Starbucks, it's so easy in our workplaces to allow that seed of resentment and bitterness to creep into our thoughts. We may work diligently and do all that's required of us, but slowly foster a growing hatred towards our jobs, our bosses, or the expectations placed upon us. And that resentment can fester and takes control of our mind, and before we know it, every facet of our work is affected. But even if it wasn't, even if we could somehow maintain an acceptable level of work while balancing hatred and bitterness inwardly, it would not be good enough. Because as Christians, we are called to more than outward action. We are called to be a people of integrity. We are called to do everything that we do with a sincere heart, not allowing our hearts to be made impure by the provocation of others. And we're called not just to purity of work as employees or as slaves, but purity of heart and mind while we work. And so that purity should lead to fear and trembling in the life of a slave. The fear is best understood as respect and reverence for the master and the master's will. The slave's actions should not be done with carelessness or sloppiness, but with excellence. This sort of respect and fear doesn't allow the slave to think lowly thoughts of their master. The slave cannot at once be contemptible of their master and yet respect him, think him impotent and yet fear him. So not only are the actions of the slaves to be sanctified through the purity of their heart, but the slave's relationship, how they deal with their master and think of their master is to be sanctified as well. Paul goes even further, just in case we've missed the point or are tempted to maybe soften what this passage is saying, Paul goes even further to say that slaves, you are to obey your masters as you do Christ. He's speaking to Christian slaves who presumably have heard that you are to love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. The Christian understands this obedience to Christ and the weight it carries, which is why Paul uses it as a reference point. Paul is telling the slaves that they are to obey their earthly masters just as they do Christ with their whole being, heart, mind, and strength, not just by actions, not just out of compulsion, but with everything. In verse 6, Paul keeps going. He keeps saying the same thing, but in a different light, and he puts it in the negative, and he says, Obey your earthly masters not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers. So that term eye service is translated by several um, Bible translations to not only while being watched. And the temptation for the slave is to work just when they're being observed, to do the bare minimum required of them. And people-pleasing is the motivation behind this sort of obedience. The people-pleaser busies themselves while they're being watched. They strive without ceasing for that smile, that affirmation from man. But the people-pleaser drops all illusions when the crowd is gone. When they are no longer a spectacle, the people-pleaser removes their mask and lounges in apathy. 
The people pleaser is concerned only with what others think of her or him. And there's a crippling fear of man in them. To avail themselves of this fear, they busy. They busy themselves to make man satisfied. However, man can only judge by what he sees. So the people pleaser has only to perform good actions, say the right things, sacrifice at just the right times, clean the outward appearance. And they can do all of this while harboring a heart that is filthy and destitute. Well, why is people pleasing wrong for a slave, you might ask? Is that, is that not their very job? Is that not their very identity? Are they, are they not just told by Paul to fear their master? Yes. Yes, they were. They were bought to please their master, to bring glory to their master, and they're told to fear and tremble at the justice of their master. Which is why Paul now clarifies who the slave's true master is. Saying that they are to obey and carry out all of this obedience because they are bondservants of Christ. So yes, the slave is to obey their human master. They are to respect them and honor them. But the true motivation behind all of this, behind the entirety of Christian ethics, is that as a believer, we are bondservants to Christ before we are anything else. And unlike any human master, Christ sees beyond the outward appearance and the frivolity of works. Christ searches the heart and knows the mind of his servants. We can't serve Christ only while being watched because Christ is always watching. And we can't serve Christ without fear and trembling because those are the beginning of wisdom. If we have not fear of the Lord, we will not live according to his will. So the reason that slaves are to obey their earthly masters doesn't hinge on the goodness of the master or the goodness of the societal structure that makes room for slavery, the reason hinges on the will of Christ. The slaves are to obey their earthly masters with a sincere heart because Christ has commanded them to do so. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul famously declares that he has become all things to all people. To the one under the law, he has become as one under the law. To the one outside of the law, he has become as one outside of the law. To the weak he has become weak, to the strong he has become strong. But in 1 Corinthians 9.23, he says, why? Paul states that I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. And this passage in 1 Corinthians 9 is more than a proof text for Christian liberties or for the use of culturally sensitive evangelistic practices. Paul is primarily concerned here with proclaiming the riches of Christ and bringing the blessing of salvation to others by any means possible. And that is why Paul commands the slaves to obey their earthly masters. It is so that Christ may be preached and witnessed through the sincere and otherworldly obedience of the slave. The slave's work ethic, as your work ethic, whether you are a student or fully employed, should reflect the Christian ethic. And the Christian ethic is outlined at the end of verse 6 when Paul says, doing the will of God from the heart. The Christian ethic is a way of life, but unlike every other ethical structure, the Christian ethic does not just provide rules that govern actions. It deals with and judges not just the actions, but the heart of man. Think of the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus and he asks, well, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? So Jesus goes through six of the commandments. He says, well, do not murder. Do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
So the young ruler says, oh, great, I've done all those. Is there anything else? Anything possibly more that I could do? And Jesus says, well, sell everything that you have. Give it to the poor and follow me. And the ruler couldn't do it. Although his actions were devoid of identifiable sin, his heart was mastered by money. We know that we cannot serve two masters. For either we will hate one and love the other, or we will be devoted to one and despise the other. We cannot serve both God in money, God in our lust, God in the affirmation of others. Our heart can only have one master. But as Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. They are master factories. We are by nature slaves to sin. We serve sin so eagerly. When sin says lust, we say how much. When sin says hate, we say who. When sin says worship me, we say for how long. We are greedy to satiate every desire of sin and of the prince of the power of the air. But we have not been left that way. We have been redeemed, meaning bought back by Christ. Christ condescended to us, taking the form of a servant and identifying with us so that by his death and resurrection, he would lead his people from slavery under sin to freedom. Romans 6, 16 to 18 says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. This passage teaches that we are no longer bound by sin, but that Christ has purchased us and has become our master. He hasn't just helped us do better or feel nicer, but has given us an entirely new heart with the law of Christ written on it. And so what must we do if we have this new heart? We must submit ourselves in obedience to become slaves of righteousness. As Ephesians 6 says, we must render service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. The the verb in Greek that is translated to rendering service comes from the word uh, doulos, which many of you will know means bondservant or slave. So rendering service does not capture the strength of what Paul is commanding here. He's saying, do the work of a slave. Be a slave to the Lord and not to man, which is exactly the same point he's making in Romans 6. Now that your heart has been purchased with the blood of Christ, you are slaves of God. We are expected to take up our cross daily for Christ, to put our hand to the plow and never look back. We are called when someone hits us, to turn to them the other cheek. When someone sues us for our tunic, to give them our cloak also. We are called to leave friends and family and all comforts behind, if need be, to follow Christ. In Philippians, Paul articulates the Christian perspective on life this way. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he expounds that statement. He says, it would be far better for him to die, that his hope is such that he expects death to be greater than anything the earth has to offer. And so then he asks, well, why would I stay? What, what would keep me here if death Being with Christ in glory is immeasurably better than a spouse, than children, than fame, than wealth, than friends, than success. Why stay? Why stay here at all? To which Paul explains, if I am to live in the flesh, 
that means fruitful labor for me, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Paul is stating from prison, we might remember, that everything he does, from his tent making to his missionary voyages, is for the purpose of the propagation of the gospel and the glorification of Christ. And as you go about your days, it's important to realize that it's hard for people to glory in Christ if they are glorying in you. One theologian put it this way, that it's it's hard to show that Christ is magnificent and that I am clever at the same time. And so this is what the Christian slave, and I'll add to that the Christian employee, is this sort of concept that they are to always keep in mind while they serve and work. Paul's main point of application to the slaves and to us is to consecrate your work to the Lord at all times, which entails two things. First, it's watch your heart and your mind. Actively kill the bitterness, the anger, the hatred, the greed, the pride that boils up inside. When you work, do so with a sincere heart and with integrity. Do not hate your work, your master, your boss, the tasks assigned to you, unless those tasks are sin, in which case it would be better to die than to conform to them. But even if your teacher marks you unfairly, if your boss mistreats you, if your coworkers revile you or gossip about you, if you miss out on that raise that you deserve, on that desk that you deserve, give praise to the Lord for purchasing your soul from mastery under sin and death. Rejoice in Christ in the hardest of times, and let the way you handle hardship point those you work with and you work under to Christ. And second, watch your actions, watch your work. Work with diligence and with excellence. Whether you're building a cupboard, designing a house, marking a paper, working in retail, or serving in a restaurant, work with excellence. Do what you do primarily not to please the customer or to please your boss or even as a means to an end for money. Work for God. Toil and serve in such a manner that all would know that you work for God and not for man. And this entails that your primary concern in your workplace, in your schooling, in your career, is not comfort. It's not happiness. It's not even the ability to provide for your family. Your primary concern is being a good ambassador for Christ. To clarify, it is good to stand up for your rights in the workplace and to expect equal and fair treatment. What I'm trying to say is don't be more consumed by the way your boss treats you or what your wage is than you are glorifying Christ in your heart and actions. Now this passage, it doesn't preclude you from quitting your job or asking for a raise. It's not commanding you never to take a sick day or have a rough day at work. Those are part of life. Sometimes you hand in a bad paper you mess up the project you're responsible for. And I also don't think that this passage is prohibiting in any way the sex slave from fleeing their captors or the black man suffering in the cotton fields under the white supremacist from running north. That's not what Paul's concerned about here. Whether you're working or leaving your work, no matter how things are going, whether it's wonderful and prosperous or awful and taxing, have your priority be glorifying Christ in your heart and actions. And for those whose masters are wicked and despicable people, who are cruel, bigoted, and unfair, stand with Paul, as he says later in Philippians, in 4, 12, 13. 
that I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. St. Augustine said that what God commands, he also enables. And this is no small command that Paul is making to the slaves. Remaining as a slave, obeying your earthly master through suffering and degradation and pain for the sake of the gospel takes monumental effort and will. But thankfully, our God is worthy of it all. We read in verse 8 that whatever good we do, we will receive the same again from the Lord, whether we are as slaves or free. This verse expresses that God will not let the righteous be left unvindicated. This is the nature of our Lord. He is perfectly good and perfectly just and perfectly sovereign and perfectly kind. The nature of God demands our obedience, but it also comforts all those who obey him. For the slave knows that every good deed they do, every moment they take to refine their heart, every second they suffer is seen by the Lord and that he will reward them for all their service done in secret. And to end this section, Paul turns to the masters and to the masters he says, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Paul gives a short, very sharp command to the masters. He says, do the same to them, which is referring to doing the will of God from the heart and rendering service to the Lord and not to man. The masters to live their life is to rule over their slaves, to direct their employees in the same way. It's for the glory of God, according to the will and the character of Christ. It's not with threatening or cruelty, but fairness and patience. For the slaves were given a promise, those in power are given a warning. They must watch the way they exercise authority because they will be treated the same by the one who has authority over all. This verse is reminding the masters of the justice of God, that just as he will care for and reward the least of his saints, so too will he rain down judgment on all wickedness. No one will escape the judgment of God. Whether slave or master, you will stand before the Lord and have to reckon every one of your thoughts, and desires, and works to him. No one will be shown partiality on that day. Now some readers might consider the idea that there is no partiality with God to be evidence and that there is no sovereign election of the saints. But this verse does not preclude election or predestination at all. Our identity, our position on this earth does not figure into the judgment. If we were the greatest political figures of all history, if we were the richest and most successful businessman, the most socially active philanthropist, but we had not repented and believed in Christ, we would be worse off than the man born, bred, and killed in bondage to slavery. The only way to salvation, the only way to avoid judgment and to enter into the kingdom of God is to repent and believe, which is why God chooses his elect from the world. He regenerates and he died for only some of humanity because if he did not predestine some, then none would be saved. However, God did not choose those he liked best, those who were the most worthy or the most talented. He chose us unconditionally, apart from anything in us, 
and without any partiality, meaning he was unmoved by man and made the decision of election completely apart from us. But when he bought us, he bound himself intimately to us, and he promised never to leave us. In Romans 8, we read that all who were predestined, he justified. And all those he justified, he also sanctified. And sanctification so often comes through sorrow and hardship and trials. The slaves of old knew this best. And even in recent history, slaves and Christians under authority have suffered degradation, abuse, torment, injustices of the kind that we cannot even fathom. Abuse that we would not wish on our worst enemy. In those situations of hardship, it's easy to be discouraged. But the hope of the suffering and abused slave, of the persecuted Christian employee, even of the tired Christian student, is that those the Lord is sanctifying, he has promised to glorify, and that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, and that in all of our suffering, in all of our obedience, Christ is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And until that day, we have a Savior and a Lord and a God who can sympathize with us, with our weakness and our temptation, because he suffered the worst so that we could receive his best. In the light of this, let us work fervently to glorify Christ in all we do. Even in our most menial jobs and frustrating tasks, let our hearts and our actions in every situation point to the loving kindness and sovereignty of the Master who purchased us with the blood of his own Son. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your great salvation for purchasing us from death, from sin, from bondage that we could not escape on our own. I pray that your gospel would take root in our hearts and in our minds and would affect every aspect of us, that we would strive without ceasing to glorify you for the rest of our days. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.